Alzheimer's disease and related dementias are one of the most pressing public health dilemmas faced by our aging society. Over 6 million Americans are currently living with dementia, and more than 55 million people worldwide are believed to be suffering from this condition. Due to population aging in the U.S. and other developed countries, the number and proportion of people living into their 70s, 80s, 90s, and beyond is increasing, and older age is the prevailing risk factor for Alzheimer's and dementia. Dementia is a syndrome in which people are robbed of their memories and other cognitive abilities, such as orientation and decision-making, and eventually require 24-hour care. Alzheimer's disease is a specific neurodegenerative disease in the brain and one of the most common reasons that people develop dementia, but as we will discuss, there are other diseases and conditions in the brain that cause dementia, and many of them coexist in the brain simultaneously. Unfortunately, while we know a lot about the neurobiology of Alzheimer's disease and what increases or decreases risk for dementia, we do not currently have a way to fully prevent or slow the development of Alzheimer's or dementia. In other words, we don't have a cure. Although there have been some interesting developments lately that we will discuss. This is a topic that is near and dear to my heart as it is the topic of my research. And I'm excited that we finally have a chance to discuss the epi of Alzheimer's and dementia on this podcast. In addition to my own research, I have had the pleasure of helping to put together the Alzheimer's Association Facts and Figures Report every year, which lays out much of the information we'll discuss here in detail. You can check it out. It's freely available online and written for scientists and non-scientists alike. So today we're going to discuss what is known about uh, how we can prevent dementia, how best to study this complicated condition, and the latest in clinical trial results targeting what is believed to be the underlying cause of Alzheimer's disease. Though, as we will discuss, there is far from consensus on this. I'm your host, Brian James, Associate Professor at Rush University Medical Center, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research straight from researchers who are deeply involved with this work. And unfortunately, I am not joined by my co-host, Ghassan Hamra, today because he is dealing with two sick children at home with fevers, so I wish him and his children the best. But we are so lucky to be joined by Dr. Maria Glimor, whom I consider an idol in the fields of epidemiology and dementia research. Maria is currently professor in the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the University of California, San Francisco, but it was just announced that she has accepted the role as the new chair of the Department of Epidemiology at Boston University School of Public Health. Congratulations, Maria. Thank you. It is such a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Well, this is great. Um, I, you know, we haven't done a dementia podcast yet for what, three years now, because I just, uh, you know, it was too near and dear to my heart. And so I kind of pushed off, but I said, if we do this, we got to talk to the right person. We got the right person. So (laughs) I'm so excited. Um, And actually we usually start these podcast episodes by asking, you know, how did you get into this field of research? So, you know, I know you have a number of focuses within epidemiology other than dementia, but obviously this is one of your top focuses. So what drew you to studying Alzheimer's and dementia? Well, you know, it's, there are always a few ways to tell a story about how you ended up where you ended up. But mm-hmm. um, basically after college and before grad school, when I ha- wasn't even considering grad school, I needed a job and 
I happened to get a job in a care home that that specialized in care for people with memory impairment. Oh, and wow. I had a series of positions um, playing pretty, pretty um, straightforward care roles for, for folks with memory impairment. And I I really loved the people that I worked with. I thought they were, um, you know, just very funny and kind. I was a pretty young kid in my early 20s, and they were sort of outrageous and wonderful old people. And they really were dealing with this kind of um, unfolding tragedy in their lives. And mm -hmm. not just the diseases that were, you know, causing memory impairment, but also uh, just being old in America, you lose mm -hmm. a lot. And so, they were sort of navigating through that. And I found it really amazing to see their humanity sort of really shine through um, their personalities, even as they were experiencing a lot of changes and disorientation mm -hmm. due to, mm -hmm. to memory loss. Um, and so when I had to choose a topic for graduate school years later, I really returned to those stories and experiences and puzzles um, mm. that that kind of arose through through those interactions. Yeah. That's so cool. That's yeah, that's very similar. I, when I was in college, I started volunteering with uh, Jason Carlowish at the University of Pennsylvania. Oh, Shout wow, out to Jason. Yeah, he was my first mentor. He, he really set me on this path. Um, and, you know, I walked in knowing nothing about Alzheimer's disease, but he had me interview people with Alzheimer's and their caregivers. Mm -hmm. And I found it so fascinating. And um you know, it's very sad, especially talking to the, it was much more sad to speak to the caregivers than to the people wow. with Alzheimer's, which was interesting because they were seeing their loved ones kind of go, you know, right before their eyes for years, right? That's the thing. <laughs> One of the things we'll talk about is this process can take years. Um, and I just got so fascinated that we knew so little about how to prevent this. And that's actually why I got into epidemiology at all was to yeah. study Alzheimer's. So Cool. Yeah. Well, I think one you. of the, one thing that I really noticed, I was doing essentially nurses aid work and mm -hmm. it was in some ways it was so much more painful for family members because so they were much always more. comparing yes. the yes. losses. Yes. Whereas as a, as a, in my sort of professional role, I could sort of meet people where they were and really appreciate what mm -hmm. they had um, yeah. and sort of personalities. And so the personalities was, absolutely shine. I, I found it so fascinating that, that people, do not lose their social graces and Absolutely. their um, kindness and humanity until later. The memory goes first, right? But yeah. um, it's really well into the disease that people lose that ability to meet you, greet you, be, you know, they may be telling right. you the same story seven times over in the same conversation, <laughs> but it's there's still like a sense of humor is really rich. Yes. That yes, that capacity yes. to connect is very, yes. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. So, all right, well, we're talking a, a lot about the the syndrome of dementia. And I think up front, whenever I talk to people, you know, who are not in the field about this, I, I'm sure you get the same question. You know, <laughs> what is the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia? Um, so I think we want to unpack that a little bit by defining some terms here. Um, I said a little bit in the intro that dementia is a syndrome, right? So it's the actual loss of memory and thinking abilities and Alzheimer's is a cause, one of the causes mm -hmm. of dementia. So it's a disease. Alzheimer's is a specific disease. Um, I want to, I want to get your thoughts on this in, this in a second, but I will say that within the field, we're having 
a, a major, I don't know if we can call it a debate or a sea change of, of, of sorts where we are trying to define, uh, many people in the field are trying to define Alzheimer's disease based on the biology as mm -hmm. opposed to the syndromes. So it used to be that people couldn't be diagnosed with the disease until post-mortem, right? So you would be diagnosed while you were living based on your symptoms as having possible or probable, or probable Alzheimer's yeah. disease, and it would be confirmed upon autopsy. Now you can actually use biomarkers, you can use imaging, we can actually see some of these, some of this Alzheimer's disease, what people believe is the Alzheimer's disease pathology in your brain while you're alive. And so it kind of changes our thinking on what is a disease versus a condition. So I, I wanted, I'm always, I'm curious as to how you define Alzheimer's disease to people compared to yeah. dementia. Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely this tension between the reason that we care about this, that we think of this as a disease is because of the clinical manifestations really memory and how people think. Um, and that, so I think that we always have to have that as a touchstone. Does any definition get us back to the things that actually matter to people? Mm -hmm. um, and there has been a huge push to really define a biomarker-based criterion for the for the disease. Which makes a lot of sense in that we we believe that having a really understanding a biological mechanism and pinpointing a biological mechanism will help us identify therapies. And so it makes a lot of sense to say we really want a biomarker-based definition of disease. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the problem is that the biomarkers that we understand the best do not tie super closely to the clinical manifestations. Mm -hmm. And that is a real a real tension. So right. I, and I think one thing that has worried me about this debate is if we define the disease in a way that it is entirely based on a biomarker that is not closely tied to the clinical manifestations, you could quote unquote, cure the disease by mm -hmm. removing the biomarker or changing the biomarker, but not actually helping people with memory. Right. And that Which is, is a major challenge. Yes. Which yes. is actually, I don't want to jump ahead because we're going to discuss this kind of at the end, um, but that is actually what we saw with one of the most recent clinical trial results for a drug called Aduhelm that was very controversially approved by the FDA because it cleared these amyloid plaques, which many people believe are, is the hallmark or the cause of Alzheimer's disease or the defining feature of Alzheimer's disease. Um, it cleared those amyloid plaques out of people's brains, but no, but these people didn't see any changes in their cognitive decline. <laughs> so they were right. still losing their right. cognitive abilities. So then people like you and me are asking, well, what's the point of taking this drug if you're not actually doing anything about what matters, which is the dementia syndrome, right? Um, much more recently, some very fascinating trial results came out for another drug called lecanemab that actually clears the amyloid and does seem to have some, uh, impact on change in cognition. So that's exciting. It's still a pretty small impact. <laughs> and so we'll talk about this in the future, you know, whether it saves the quote unquote amyloid hypothesis or not. Um, I think there are still some critics and I may be talking to one of them. So, uh, <laughs> but, uh, I, but I do want to make the point for our listeners that Alzheimer's disease is just one disease that causes dementia. And this is, I think, pretty confusing for a lot of people that, um, you know, when you actually look into the brains of people who have dementia and actually 
where I work, the Rush Alzheimer's Disease Center, we're pretty integral in having shown this, that when you actually look at people with what we call probable Alzheimer's dementia, most of them have a lot of other stuff going on in there. They've got um, these proteins called Lewy bodies. They've got strokes. They got mini strokes. They have um, a newly discovered protein called TDP43 that seems to really be prevalent in the brains of people with dementia. And and most people have these at the same time, right? Or simultaneously. And having more than one of these conditions or diseases in your brain increases your risk of dementia. So um, I think we come from a, a world where people like to, to diagnose by exclusion and say, you have this particular disease. Well, that was exactly, I mean, that, that was exactly. criteria. It was a that diagnosis. Was it was a diagnosis by exclusion, which, right. which I think actually was pretty bad for the research. Mm-hmm led to some very funny findings, but right. you know, the rush, I think the research coming out of rush has been incredibly valuable for understanding that. And some of the, like the 90 plus study where we just mm-hmm. see, but, but it makes a lot of sense. If you think about it, of course, anything that harms your brain is going to harm your brain. And that's going yeah. to add up in a sort of right. um, potentially synergistic way that, mm-hmm. that ultimately causes memory and cognitive challenges. And right it has been a real challenge in the field that there are so many co-occurring processes, mm-hmm. but I actually think we'd be better served by not trying to simplify that and say, yeah. there yeah. are probably lots and lots of mechanisms. And honestly, any of those mechanisms could potentially be beneficial for people's brains. Like if we could conceptualize each of those as potential targets to reduce dementia and the clinical manifestations that we care about. So yes. I think that that work showing the mixed pathology and how common it is, is super mm-hmm. helpful for people. Um, mm-hmm. Right. So thank you. That That's the term I was going to introduce is mixed pathologies. So mo- most people with dementia actually have mixed pathologies, not just Alzheimer's pathology. And if you have dementia, that's confirmed to be based on a number of different pathologies, we call that mixed dementia. So if you use some of these terms throughout this conversation, that's what we mean. Um, but, you know, as we're going to start talking about, you know, we know a lot about what we can do to prevent no, I shouldn't say prevent, that is the wrong term, <laughs> to reduce your risk for d- developing dementia. And a lot of those things don't seem to be working through targeting Alzheimer's disease, right? So there's other things going on. Maybe you're improving your vascular health and that's that's reducing your risk of stroke or, or mini stroke or other va- you know cerebrovascular events. And if you don't have those on top of the Alzheimer's that may or may not be building up in your brain, you're a lot less likely to, less likely to cross a threshold for dementia, right? Um, I should all, I think another point we should make is that all of these conditions, Alzheimer's especially, appear to build up in the brain over years, maybe even decades, decades. right? <laughs> decades, right. Yeah. And and going back to what you were saying about defining the disease based on the biomarker rather than the syndrome, that creates a situation where people have the disease in their brain, but haven't developed, it hasn't gotten to the point where it's affecting their cognition enough that they have dementia. So what does that mean? You have people who have quote unquote Alzheimer's disease, but they don't have the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, maybe yet. That's Maybe right. they will develop, right? And I think that people like you, you know, some critics of the of the amyloid hypothesis, um, rightly point out that that creates a very confusing 
situation for many uh, Americans or, or not just Americans for people where you, you're going to be now telling people they have Alzheimer's disease when they're like, but I don't have any memory problems. Like, what are you talking about? And again, what matters is the memory and thinking problems, right? So what, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, there's so many issues that are raised by that, that challenge. And one is, especially if we have a medication that people think, especially if the disease is stigmatized, people are making major life changes based on a misunderstanding of the disease. And we're telling them, oh, you have a biomarker that increases the chances that you're going to get the disease if we wait 20 years. That's a huge issue in terms of people changing their lives who really shouldn't be anticipating that they're going to have mem major memory challenges because mm -hmm. that is they're just... Um, uh, that's decades in the future, and they may never see that. Um, another is potentially treating people with uh, me medications that may have side effects and harms. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a very large number of people who have subjective memory complaints and probably a very large number of people who have biomarker um, indicators of, of, sort of what we think of as the biomarker indicator of early Alzheimer's disease. Right. Um, in the general U.S., the general middle-aged population mm -hmm. will see these are very common. So it's a big deal to try to, to undertake yeah. to treat a bunch of people, uh, such a large fraction of the population. Right. Um, so I think we have to be worried about whether we're radically over-diagnosing. And I think we've seen um, some of the real tragedies that unfolded on a population health basis by over-diagnosing people mm -hmm. um, for other diseases. Like we went through an era when we thought, oh, screening is always good. Uh, we should have more screening and more treatment. And now we're starting to recognize the ways that over-treatment can harm people and really make their lives worse. And um, I think that this is what emerged with some of the PSA-based screening and prostate mm -hmm. cancer, a very aggressive response to prostate cancers that might be indolent and might really mm -hmm. not harm people if, if left alone with sort of watchful waiting. So- yeah. Um, <clears throat> I do think we have to worry about going down that path with Alzheimer's disease with, with such a disease that has such a long and very heterogeneous course. Um, yeah. and so for many people who have biomarkers, that is not the major threat to their health and they probably should not be undertaking major life changes, um, uh, or, or treatments with potentially harmful drugs. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And on top of that, we have the question of who's going to pay for it, right? You know, if, if, if Medicare is, is paying for everyone who's over 65, you know, their medications, and we all of a sudden are saying, what, 10 million people are indicated for this drug that don't act, you know, many of them don't even have any of these symptoms. Um, that's a lot of people to put on, a, as you say, potentially, we, we haven't talked about the side effects of some of these uh, drugs, but, um, you know, there are some side effects in these trials that that could be potentially harmful and the, both the cost and the um, potential harm is really something we need to consider. Yeah. And they're expensive. I mean, obviously these are still experimental drugs at this point, but uh, well, actually they're not. They're approved. <laughs> we don't know the price for Lacanamab. I don't think we know, but it's still an infusion, just like uh, Aducanumab, which, you know, which means they inject it and it's a very... I'm pretty sure it's pretty pricey as well. Yeah. I mean, with, with aducanumab or Adjahelm, um, we calculated just so people know the original announced price was going to be $56,000 per year for yeah. just the medication, not mm -hmm. the additional screening for safety. And then the company that made it 
dropped the price to 26,000, I think. Mm -hmm. And we did a calculation of just what it would mean if that was paid for by Medicare. And, it, and it effectively, and this was a medication that it wasn't clear that it had any cognitive benefit. Right, uh, right. At like, uh, basically, if Medicare was covering that, they would be paying, the federal government would be spending many, many times as much on an ineffective drug as they were spending on research to find an effective therapy. Right, um, right, right. Just the ratio of the cost is so crazy that you really mm -hmm. want something that actually makes a difference for people um, and clearly safe to, to have it in widespread yeah. use. Yeah. And, and we should say that Medicare, CMS decided, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, uh, decided they actually were not going to pay for aducanumab based on their, their review. Um, but, you know, then we've got this other question. If you don't have Medicare paying for it and you don't bankrupt Medicare that way, then who is going to pay for it? People who can afford all that, right? So then you've got a, a disparity situation where only wealthy people can afford to potentially stave off dementia. And that, that has its own ethical issues, right? I, so. actually, I thought the Medicare decision on aducanumab was just very, was actually quite thoughtful. Incredibly it, thoughtful. I was blown away when I read it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and I think my take is that they, the, they, the decision, because the decision actually covered all of amyloid targeting therapies. So lecanemab, mm -hmm. if it's approved, the new medication, I think would fall in under this yes, rubric yes. of CMS. And, yes. and if it's approved, then basically they are, the decision is that they will fund, they will pay for amyloid targeting therapies if those, tar if those therapies are approved based on clinical benefit for patients. Uh, right. Right. And that's a, I think that's a huge thing. So it makes complete uh, sense. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. approved because it helps people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Of course, now, of course, we had a little like uh, what six month reprieve, and now we've actually got a drug that might be in that situation. And it's like, well, now put your money where your mouth is. Now it is exciting, but it also means we're right back to to the question of are we going to bankrupt Medicare paying for this for you know a, a one point change on an eighteen point cognition? Right. right. Um, anyways, I, I should say any benefit is. A benefit, you know. I don't want to. I think a lot of people are saying, "Ah, it's such a small benefit." But you know, a lot of the we're about to discuss some of the lifestyle uh, risk factors for dementia that we know of, and when you actually look at some of them, they're they're very small benefits as well, but they add up at a population level. So, I don't think we want to completely poo-poo, you know, a small benefit because any benefit could delay. I mean, if you could get one more year of independence in your memory and thinking ability, I think most people would take that, right? So, um, okay, so let's, uh, actually, I'm going to take a pause, Sue, because I want to actually turn my heat up. It's freezing in here. <laughs> so we're going to edit this part out, but I can do it from my Man, phone. I'm, I'm leaving this. I think this is going to be <laughs> no. got cold during the recording. <laughs> freezing. I'm up in the attic and it's like, you know, all right, I just turned it up. All right. We're going to start back now. Um, all right, so we talked a, a little bit about this, but let's really get into it. I think you and I, you know, we are not clinical trialists, right? The two of us. What, what no. we really, we're epidemiologists and we study observe, um, observationally in a group of people why some people develop dementia and some people don't. And there is a huge amount of research on 
um, be modifiable, both non-modifiable and modifiable risk factors for dementia that we know of. Um, so I want to really lay some of those out for people because it's it's interesting how little of this I've found is known by the general public. You know, <laughs> um, we know so much about this, and people come up and ask me, "What can I do to prevent dementia?" And when I tell them things like exercise, they look at me like I have three heads. They're like, really? And I'm like, yeah, that's the best one of the best things you can do. <laughs> so. Um, you know, I think we should talk about that. Let's start though with with non-modifiable risk factors because I think a lot of people ask the question of, you know, if Alzheimer's and dementia run in my family, you know, does that mean I'm going to get it? Right? So what 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 do you tell people when they ask you that question? I say um it definitely increases the risk, but there's no way that it's it's definitely not a certain thing. Um right. there's still heterogeneity even the the genetics do contribute but they are by no means deterministic based on the genetics that we've been able to identify and the family history that we've, we've been able to, to study. Um, right. Now, there is a difference in early onset diseases. Mm -hmm. So the, the causes of dementia that, that happen early, the early onset Alzheimer's, um, which is usually defined informally as like, or it's defined as under age six diagnosis under age 65. Mm -hmm. That may change now that we have biomarker-based diagnoses. Right, 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 exactly. But historically, it's been um, Alzheimer's mm -hmm. under age 65. But for the most common late-onset Alzheimer's, um, it's very common, and many people who have a family history never develop the disease. Absolutely right. And, and just jumping on what you're saying, so so many people with early or what we, what we keep changing the term that we use, but you use yeah. the term for before age 65, yeah. early-onset dementia or um, many of them have a genetic, specific genetic mutation that can be traced to a specific mutation that um, determines that they will develop it at a very early age. Late and life those, dementia. Those so early so. onset genetic mutations are have very strong effects. So very strong effects. Yes. Much stronger yes. than the known genetic variants for late onset. Right. And not everyone with early onset has those ge genetic mutations, but like a large proportion of them do. Because it's yeah. the reason we've cut it at 65 is because it's relatively rare to develop Alzheimer's disease and dementia before age 65. It gets much more common from 65 on and almost exponentially to by the time you're 85. Uh, I think some studies have said, what, you have like a 50% chance of developing dementia? It's quite or, high. I don't, I don't know that it's 50%, but it's, yeah, it's but quite it high. high. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yes, so, but there are genetic markers and people will ask about this for, um, that increase your risk of developing late onset Alzheimer's disease. Um, can you talk a little bit about those? I think the biggest, I mean, by far the largest effect is the APOE E4 yes. allele. Mm -hmm. And it does dr dramatically increase your, your risk of Alzheimer's mm -hmm. disease if you carry that allele or if you carry two of those alleles. But even mm -hmm. in people who carry those alleles, um, not they definite. do not develop Alzheimer's while there. Now, one thing is um, to think about late life, and this is just a just thinking about late life is uh, there are a lot of potential um, threats to health in in late life, and so mm -hmm. um, people may experience other major health threats and ultimately right. die before they develop Alzheimer's. So there's a debate yes. about like, well, if everybody lived to be 120, would those people ultimately develop develop Alzheimer's? But right. um, most people don't live to be 120, and so. Right. Uh, we see many people who have a higher genetic risk, but still don't develop dementia. 
That's exactly right. And that was a point that I wanted to make sure we got out there is that we often talk about developing dementia as if it's a dichotomous, you're yeah. either going to get it or you don't, you know, like I got it in my family. Am I going to get it or am I not? And it's like, well, well, your risk is increased. That means you are more likely to get it if it's in your family. But like you said, you may, something else may happen to you first and you don't get it. Doesn't mean that you would have gotten it. I don't know if that's good it. news. Like you're, you're more yeah. likely to die of cardiovascular disease. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> it's, it's just that we're talking about a decades long process, right? And that's so right. this is why oftentimes many of us in this field don't study incident dementia as a, as a, you know, an event that occurs, like a heart attack occurs. Right, and instead right. we study your actual trajectories of cognitive function. And we look at, you know, well, you were at baseline and you were doing pretty well. And then over time, it looks like your, your memory and your thinking are really starting to plummet. And instead of trying to say like, this is the point where you develop dementia, right. we can say, we well, see a pretty good picture that you're going downhill here. And yeah. so what are the things that are related to people who go downhill rather than people who don't? And another, um, you know, little story I'll tell is that, and I use this a lot, so I'm sure people who know me have heard this before, but, <laughs> um, but when I give talks in the community and people, uh, you know, and I'm talking about some of the things we're about to talk about in terms of what we know can reduce your risk, I'll invariably have someone say, well, you know, you said all this stuff, but my, my mother died of Alzheimer's disease and did all of that. She had a, a really high level of education as we're all about to talk about. She was physically active. She was socially active. She volunteered, blah, 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 and still got it. And then I'll say, you know, well, when did she develop it? And I'll say, well, she was 95. And I was like, well, you know, <laughs> she, you know, she may have got it when she was 75, had she not done all of these amazing preventable, you know, things in her life to, to, to keep that at bay. So, you know, again, it's not a dichotomous yes or no binary thing. It's like we're talking about moving back onset or pushing it forward. But I also, I also think it's really important. We do not understand many, many of the determinants of this disease. Right. Like, even if you right. put everything together, there's still a tremendous amount of uncertainty. Absolutely. Who and when um, people are going to develop dementia, and yep. that is part of what is fascinating. Is even with you know with APOE and twenty some other, actually now it's many more genetic polymorphisms that we know predict. They just predict a little bit, a little teeny so bit. So yeah. much uncertainty still right. in what drives this. So right. absolutely. Um, well, I mentioned education, and I know that this is um, a, a large area of research for you. You're you're very interested in, and I am too, in how obtaining a higher level of education can affect health in general. But um, there's a definite association with with dementia. And can you talk a little bit about what you think the, the connection is there? Yeah, I think, um, so So when I first started uh, working on education and dementia risk, uh, there was a lot of uncertainty about whether it was actually causal. Like maybe yeah. the thought was just people with more education had lower risk for other reasons. And mm -hmm. there was very robust evidence that people with more education were less likely to develop dementia or, or develop it later in life, but it wasn't clear that it was causal. Right. I think now, and so what we did actually was try to show things that increased education but had nothing to do with individual characteristics also delayed dementia onset. And I think now we have pretty good evidence that things like um, increases in mandatory schooling so that people go to school a little bit longer, those things did reduce people's risk of dementia decades mm -hmm. later, right? Mm -hmm. And had nothing to do with their, their individual characteristics other than how much schooling they got 
And then the things that they did afterwards, of course, how much school you get changes all kinds of things that happen next. It changes what work mm -hmm. you do. It changes how much money you earn. It probably changes who you marry. It changes mm -hmm. what kinds of stuff you eat. It changes your access to medical care. It changes your right. incidence of hypertension and these other, other sort of later, um, sort of mid to late life risk factors. Mm -hmm. So I think now we have pretty good evidence that, that increasing people's education really does reduce risk. Now the debate is, is that because basically when you reach old age and you start to accumulate the disease that we think is the late life disease that causes Alzheimer's, mm -hmm. are you, are you basically starting from a place where you're protected or are you more resilient as you experience that disease that you can kind of have a recovery and, and plasticity in the face of that disease? Yes, yes. I think at this point, um, I would say the bulk of the evidence is that you are starting in a place where it just mm -hmm. takes longer before you reach impairment um, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. you you have, and that I I don't want to poo poo that that is like mm -hmm. a huge effect, yeah. Yeah. really big benefit in terms of mm -hmm. how long people can maintain independence and um, have high quality of life and um, uh use their brains in the ways that we like mm -hmm. to use our brains. <laughs> um, right, 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 right. Um, but I think we, there's uh, a lot of curiosity about to what extent is education or cognitive engagement able to protect you as you accumulate disease. Mm -hmm. And the evidence for that, I would say there's not compelling evidence that it really slows decline. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It's surprisingly inconsistent. And I think there's yeah. some that is, that, some of that inconsistency is due to statistical challenges and mm -hmm. some is due to lack of data, like right. actually detecting differences in rate of change is the really rate of change. Helpful. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I, yeah, I was going to say that I think most of this, you're right. It's mixed, but most of the studies have shown not a lot of evidence of difference in rate of okay. change. It's just that people are starting at a higher point. So if you have if you're starting at a higher level of cognition because of what you've built up through education, then you can decline at the same rate, but you're going to hit that threshold threshold for dementia again years later than someone yeah. who's starting at a much lower point. Um, the other, the alternate hypothesis, and, and, and the, the interesting question is like, does that mean it's causal or not? I mean, this whole this whole word causal is very interesting in the world of dementia research because I would still say that that's a causal effect. It's just not causing the the Alzheimer's disease to change, <laughs> but it that's is right. but it is causing you to be able to live longer with the cognition that you have before you cross a certain threshold. Right? I think that's part of what is so this distinction between the biomarker disease and the clinical manifestations of the disease. Yes, if it's yes. the memory impairment that we care about. That's what we care about. Education. There seems to be a yeah. that it is causal. Right. And this really relates to one of the more interesting phenomena in lately, which is it seems that at any given age, the incidence rate of dementia is declining in mm -hmm. recent in recent years. That's decades. right. Yes. Um, and it it's still as a whole, dementia is becoming more common because the population mm -hmm. is getting older. Right. But given that somebody is 80, the probability that they are going to develop dementia uh, has is going down. It, it, and there are a few different sources of evidence suggesting that. Exactly. At, at least in the developed world, it looks like. I, I'm not sure that's What's the case. your interpretation of that? Yeah, I, th I think that that is exactly, I think it's increases in education. I, you know, so if we hadn't seen decreases in um 
yes, dementia incidents, this is how I would put it, then it would argue against education having anything to do with it because we have made dramatic changes to education since the 20s, you know, the, the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s, which is when people were talking about who are developing dementia were born, right? Um, you know, over the course of the you know, the last hundred years, dramatic changes. And, and and so if you didn't see all of a sudden people reaching their 80s and 90s not developing dementia, then you'd say, well, maybe education isn't doing anything, right? But we are seeing that um, it, the dementia incidence is going down. Um, there's also been, we haven't even talked about these yet, but we're, we're going to talk about cardiovascular risk factors. Um, but we've made major changes to cardiovascular health in in uh, our society. And that is another reason that we may be seeing a lowered incidence for dementia. Um, but thank you for making the point that we have to make very clearly in the Alzheimer's Association Facts and Figures report that I help to write every year that I mentioned in the intro, that even though the incidence may be going down, which is your rate of new cases, the prevalence is always going to is going to be going up because our population is aging. So there's just more and more people who are reaching the age where this starts to happen. And again, we don't have a cure. Um, so that number of people living with dementia is just continuing to go up. That's right. Um, yeah. So I, I, oh, we should also mention that the the term that people use for the alternate hypothesis that it actually um, changes your your the wiring of your brain in such a way that you can actually tolerate the Alzheimer's disease pathology as it builds up in your brain and continue to use your brain um, is called the cognitive reserve hypothesis. And I, I will say personally that that is probably the reason I got into this area of, of research. I found it so fascinating. So like I said, when I was working with Jason Carlowish, I was really interested in why do people get this disease? But I naively thought, oh, there must be some molecule. I don't really want to be a, a molecular scientist. No offense to molecular scientists out there. You do an amazing work, but that just wasn't my, that wasn't mm -hmm. where I wanted to go. I was much more interested in, in public health and, you know, the mm -hmm. way people live their life and change their behavior. And I was like, but is that going to work with Alzheimer's? And then lo and behold, I find out that most of the evidence we have on how to reduce risk is based on modifying your lifestyle or your, or your behavior. And this idea that you could actually, yo, we can't do anything about the Alzheimer's building up, but we can change your brain's ability to tolerate it, you know, was fascinating to me. And other organ systems have reserve capacity, right? So this isn't yeah. just a brain thing. And we've shown just demonstrably that, that the heart, that some people have a higher cardiovascular reserve capacity. People have, you know, more or less kidney reserves. So it makes sense. You know, the brain's another organ that, uh, and you you know. see it, I mean, if you think about stroke, right, the same mm -hmm. lesion related to stroke has very different um, consequences for functioning. Yes, and yes. then people after, it's not that, you know, people after stroke have recovery and mm -hmm. uh, that recovery is very much based on their experiences after yes. stroke and the post-stroke mm -hmm. therapy, as mm -hmm. well as yeah. um, <clears throat> characteristics of the stroke. But it's, right. it's so there really is some resilience and in, in the brain is yes. very plastic, <laughs> and even, right. Right. even in late life. Right. Uh, brain is very plastic. So yes, yes. And this is another term we throw around a lot and resilience, which is, you yeah. know, people are trying to define the, the terms and we have, you know, summits on this and people have, but, but, but the bottom line to me, it's like, we're, we're getting into semantics, but resilience is just the ability for you to cope with the consequences of 
this disease that's building up your brain that we don't need, seem to know how to stop. And I should also mention that I wrote a review paper in, in recent years showing that all of the things that we we're going to briefly talk about, because we've had a long conversation here. So we're just going to briefly <laughs> go over some of the, the um, you know, known behavioral or modifiable risk factors. But if you actually look at whether they actually are related to Alzheimer's disease, whether using biomarker studies or, or post-mortem autopsy studies like we do at Rush, you don't see a lot of evidence that any of, the, of these things are directly related to Alzheimer's disease, but they seem to be related to whether you develop dementia in the presence of that's right. these things. And so that's why I find that really fascinating that um, you know, when people ask what's going on in the field of Alzheimer's research, is it good news or bad news? I'm like, if you focus on the clinical trial results until very recently, it's mostly bad news, right? But if you talk about prevention of what matters, which is the syndrome of losing your memory and thinking, we're doing amazing stuff. Like we've learned so much in the last 20, 30 years about how to prevent that. So let's briefly go over some of okay. them because we can't go over the whole thing. But I, I know... Um, I study uh, behavioral, you know, social activities, cognitive activities, physical activity. Um, there seems to be a, um, a lot of evidence that people who are more active in these domains seem to be less likely to develop dementia, um, whether it's because they're building up a cognitive reserve capacity. There's this whole concept that seems to have gone away. I haven't seen heard a lot of people use it lately, but the, the use it or lose it idea uh, yeah. that if you continue to use your brain, you keep it active, you're not going to lose it. Um, but in terms of physical activity, there's a lot of evidence that you're directly improving your cardiovascular health, which in turn improves your cerebrovascular health and keeps your brain from developing some of these, um, you know, strokes and things like that. Right. Um, I, I think, I mean, one of the challenges of this domain of research is the very long um, period yes. over which um, dementia yes. develops, mm -hmm. whether it's Alzheimer's or vascular, all of these diseases, like they mm -hmm. develop over such a long time. Mm -hmm. And we do see a dynamic relationship where, which is not surprising, that as people have little, very subtle memory and cognitive changes, they change their behaviors. And so mm -hmm. like a lot of the research about cognitive engagement, predicting like people who, uh, play Sudoku or mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. bridge or whatever, that mm -hmm. these people have lower risk of, of um, future dementia. But there's this real challenge in ever getting prior to the very first yes. sentence that maybe people are disengaging from those cognitively challenging activities mm -hmm. because they're experiencing a little bit of, of cognitive decline. That is very right. difficult to get ahead of. And that like that exact issue has driven a lot of the research questions or study mm -hmm. designs that I've mm -hmm. I wanted to work on. Yep. Because I think showing which came first is actually really, really hard. Really uh, difficult. That's exactly right. And I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to grill you on, on how to how to design studies for that. And um on top of that, you know, even if you're measuring something in later life, like, you know, I've written a number of papers on social activity in later life being related to yeah. dementia or cognitive decline, but you don't know whether it's really being active in later life that's driving it or whether your activities in later life, aside from the reverse causation scenario that you're talking about, it just may be a proxy for how active you've been your, over your entire Absolutely. life. Absolutely. You know? So you just may be an active person. And it was really being active in your 30s, 40s, and 50s that's driving your, your dementia risk in your 80s and 90s. And you think that doing something about it 
in your eighties or nineties is, is doing something, but we don't know. So it's hard to say, take a very sedentary person in their eighties and say, go be active. If you're going to actually change their, their, you know, right. path. Right. That's right. That's the tough thing. Um, so how have you briefly, this is again, this is <laughs> a lay audience. We don't want to get too much into marginal structural models or whatever, but like how briefly, um, have you designed studies to try to get at this question? Um, so the education is is an example where we've we've looked for things that influence how much education people get, but wouldn't otherwise be related to dementia, mm -hmm. except via the education. So um, a lot of our research was about state mandated minimum school, like the age when you can drop uh, out of school, which mm -hmm. really shapes, it turns out people do stay in school longer in states mm -hmm. that require longer school. And mm -hmm. most states in the U.S., change their increase their mandated um, compulsory schooling uh, law over the 20th century. And also in the UK, there were changes in Europe, there were changes. And over and over again, we've seen you can compare people born in birth cohorts mm -hmm. in a place right before the law was changed and in a place right after the law was changed. So mm -hmm. people who basically had to go to school an extra year or an extra two years because of the state law change. Right, right. And you can see that those cohorts they have a little bit lower dementia risk. And, and so, so that basically, I find that kind of structure is pretty convincing mm -hmm. for, I mean, in combination with other evidence. And we've mm -hmm. seen that for education, we've seen that in many different um, countries and states where that, that overall design is repeated. Now, um, I think for other risk factors, we should be looking for other kinds of natural experiments like that. So, mm -hmm. um, it's a little bit, education is a nice example because yeah. there are actually policies. Yes. But when we think about medications, we can think mm -hmm. about um, essentially when Medicaid, like for example, I'm very interested in things like antidepressant medications or alcohol use. And in fact, we do see there are many policies that influence how much how much alcohol people drink. Mm -hmm. um, alcohol taxes mm -hmm. have an influence. And, and those are the kinds of designs where I think we can get make a little headway on saying whether this is causal or not. It mm -hmm. is harder for social ties and social Yes, yes. Can't really <laughs> mandate that, can you? No. no. Yeah. Although, you know, it's interesting. There are a lot of of uh, policies and frameworks that really do influence very personal aspects of people's lives um, mm -hmm. that we can could potentially do a better job of leveraging. Um, sure. But I think number one is to really try to get information across people's life course. So mm -hmm. data from much earlier in life about their, their um, engagement and connections. Right. And doing that prospectively is obviously very hard. If you want yeah. to study, if you want to get an answer in your lifetime, you can't start a cohort That's right. <laughs> at birth and then look for dementia in the eighties and nineties, unless you plan to live to be 150. Um, so a lot of this has to be retrospective, Absolutely. which is obviously very difficult unless you're doing a natural experiment design like you did. Um, but you know, you have to rely on, go ahead. A data linkages. Like I think this yes, is data a lot mm -hmm. of the data opportunities that mm -hmm. have been made such uh, news in, in various domains have a lot of potential for health research where if Absolutely. we can do better data linkages, I think it opens up new research designs that can be much more rigorous. 
Absolutely. Which is why I do Medicare linkage in, in yeah, my cohorts. So look back, we had, you know, <laughs> look back to the nineties for every single time you went to the doctor. I'm not going to expect you to remember that. <laughs> did you, did you see a doctor about XYZ in 1997? But if I have your Medicare records, I, I can know. Uh, yeah. So great. So I, I think briefly, I wanted to get into something that I know you and I are very interested in, which is the social determinants of yeah. of dementia. Um, you know, specifically, let's talk about what's known about race and ethnicity and, and the disparities there. So can you talk talk a little bit about what we know there and why there may be disparities by race, ethnicity? Yeah. Um, so in the United States, uh, Black Americans have a substantially higher risk of dementia. The evidence that actual cognitive change is faster is, is inconsistent across mm -hmm. studies. Mm -hmm. Um, for Latinos, it seems that it actually differs a little bit across studies as well, because Latinos are so heterogeneous. And so, yeah. um, the best evidence from studies on the East coast, uh, seem to, to show that Latinos have elevated risk of dementia, best evidence on the West coast, not so much. Mm -hmm. Um, and that probably has to do with just really different differences in the population, but, mm -hmm. um, and so what are the mechanisms, what are the reasons for this? Of course. There is this a very strong legacy of discrimination and racism that has shaped um, mm -hmm. access for Black Americans to core resources like education, high quality education, mm -hmm. um, medical care, management of hypertension. Mm -hmm. When we think about vascular pathways, the vascular pathways are probably contributing differentially to risk in uh, mm -hmm. Black Americans. And we are doing an egregious job in this country of controlling hypertension and managing hypertension for um, for everybody, but but especially for Black Americans. Mm -hmm. So I I think this this is one of the travesties, and this really came up a lot with the medication trials because mm -hmm. the medication trials um, for Adjahelm in particular were so egregiously underrepresented um, mm -hmm. Black and Latino um, individuals. For lecanemab, and in fact, I think for Adjahelm, the trials had nine black <laughs> participants who was yeah. the drug that was approved by the FDA. Yeah. So it felt like when people say blacks were underrepresented, black people were underrepresented. I mean, they weren't even there. <laughs> I, yeah, I think it's like a euphemism for like. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Completely ignored. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and for lecanemab. It was, it was a lot better, but still the confidence intervals were so wide for the yeah. black group that, you know, we, we just need yeah. a lot more. I think uh, there were more like 20 black participants in the treatment group in lecanemab, which is yeah. better, but not great. <laughs> not, and and not, a lot of that is adequate. due to, I, I, look, I didn't, I wasn't involved in the trials from, but, but at least from what the investigators were saying is that they tried very, very hard to, to increase diversity. And then there's always this, um, I got to be careful with my words here, but, <laughs> um, you know, even when you try, you may not succeed in, in recruiting minoritized populations into research. And there are very, very good reasons that people in those populations may not want to be in medical research based on the history of, like you said, um, exploitation, especially by the medical, you know, community of those, those groups. So, you know, there's a lot of distrust, medical disrupts, distrust, and not just distrust, but a question of like, what, what benefit is there for me? Is this for my, is this for me? You know, like, are you gathering information for me or, or, or people like me? Um, and that's, that hasn't been proven to a lot of people. So uh, I think we should say that there's a lot of good reasons for 
um, this low level of participation, even if the researchers are trying to include more. Um, that being said, there are definite ways to overcome these obstacles that that we need more of. Um, and I don't want to go too <laughs> often to a tangent on this, but um, you can't just use that as an excuse is what I'm trying to say. And absolutely, if this is the group of people that are most at risk for this disease, you need to study that group of people. I think we can all yeah, agree on I, that. I think, I mean, the, the history of racism harms everybody and mm -hmm. and it is really multifaceted the consequences of of mm -hmm. um of racism that we are we are facing now um and i think ultimately it shouldn't be acceptable to have a drug or approve a drug that wasn't that we haven't really evaluated the effects of that drug for everyone and right. that includes people regardless of, of race or ethnic mm -hmm. identity um and in particular we need to be very critical about this for groups of people who have been systematically harmed and disenfranchised and marginalized and that includes black americans and, and other groups who just yes. are have really been systematically harmed um right, right. So I, th I think we can expect better and i, and I think agree. we should call it bad science when it's not inclusive um fair enough um and and I think it's it's actually been a very nice thing in the field to see people recognize this gap and try mm -hmm. very hard to to address it. We are yes. obviously not there, and that we're not there. Yeah, uh, um, uh, we really need to hold hold people to a high standard. And I think mm -hmm. it's actually really gratifying to see some of the emerging leaders in our field, emerging scientists in our field, um, from from Black and Latino communities. Yes. And I think that that will change the priorities we're placing on 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 Absolutely. research questions. Totally. And actually, I want to I want to say, speaking of one of those researchers that I admire so much, my colleague, Lisa Barnes. Um, she's a tremendous leader in the field, not, a, not an emerging leader. Just No, not an emerging leader, leader a leader Absolutely. in the field. But I want to say that, you know, much of her works looks at the direct effect of this discrimination that we're talking about on the development of dementia. So all of the pathways that you talked about absolutely are at play, but there's also just the stress, the, the cumulative stress of living in America as a Black person could directly influence your health. And we've shown that many times over. And there's no reason that brain health wouldn't be one of the, um, you know, one of the outcomes that are affected directly by that. So I have a question for you, mm -hmm. uh, kind of related to this. There's there's a lot of um, interest in gender differences in mm -hmm. dementia yep. and Alzheimer's risk. Yes. And I would love to know what you think of this. And in particular, uh, related to this, I think that there's been a lot of emphasis on biological framing of mm -hmm, differences mm -hmm. as opposed yes. to social experiences related to gender. Absolutely. I would, I'd love to know what you think about the evidence for gender differences and the mechanisms. That... Yeah, I, I think you, you you hit the nail on the head that that most of the research has been on these biological differences, looking at menopause and hormones and all this. And I'm like, but why is there so little on the cultural and and lived experience differences between men and women. Um, I actually just wrote a um, commentary with Michelle Melky on Elizabeth Rose Mayeda's 
fantastic articles showing that women who participated in the workforce um, experienced less dementia as they got older than people who didn't, uh, than women who didn't, I should say. And you can't explain that all by biology, right? There is, um, there's definitely cultural and lived experience differences that I think we need to uh, explore a lot more. And I think that as you close those gaps, you know, you're going to see, um, you're going to see a more benefits in the long term for women compared to men because they are, uh, you know, over like we talked about with education. My gosh, like who who benefited the most from the educational changes in America in a hundred years? It, women weren't even getting education in the beginning of the nineteenth century. You know, twentieth century the college education that has changed. especially college education. College. Um, so it's. Right, right. So it is changed. So yes, that's what I should. Say. Um, so it's changed disproportionately by gender, and I think we need yeah. to study the effects of that long term. Um, and we should also say that gender is not binary for every single person, and and we are just now starting to um, study sex and gender minorities and people who are non-binary who don't identify as one or the other. And 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 there is evidence. Shout out to Jason Flatt and his research on, um, you know, there's higher risk for cognitive impairment in sex and sexual and gender minorities. So that is an emerging area of research need to pay a lot more attention to. Um, yeah. Yeah, I do. I think that there's this, this um, relates to the conversation about racial ethnic disparities as well Is that I think that there will be one thing I'm excited about is research that's really centering the experiences of people whose experiences have yes. not been centered historically. And I think yes. for women, for example, experiences of violence, experiences of poverty, experiences related to caregiving, these mm -hmm. very socialized, gendered experiences. Mm -hmm. And I think for Black Americans, there's a whole set of experiences that are really important and common and um, historically uh, Alzheimer's research has not centered those experiences. And I'm very excited to see. I have a, a wonderful postdoc who's working on um, historically Black colleges and universities, attendance at HBCUs as a mm -hmm. very sort of distinctive educational experience, um, mm -hmm. experiences of residential segregation and uh, uh, ethnic yes. identity, as well as discrimination when we talk about sort of negative things. But there's also a lot of, of very positive things around identity that that that's right. Are very exciting. So absolutely. The, uh, the last thing I'll say about that is we we I would it would be a shame for me not to mention that we've only talked about uh, black and Latino Americans yeah, compared absolutely. to white, but obviously there are many more races and ethnicities, myself included, as an Asian American. Um, we don't have a lot of information at the moment about you know other groups other than black and Latino, and I think we need to increase you know, research in that area. Um, so, but anyways, we are getting close to the end of an hour and I want to make sure we just conclude by addressing what we talked about. Um, some of these, these recent trial results in terms of uh, lecanemab and you and I have had a, uh, you know, a little back and forth on Twitter. And um, I, I'm just curious, you know, I, I know if you are critical of the amyloid, quote unquote, amyloid hypothesis, you know, how do these recent results affect your, your criticism of that? That being said, if you're a big supporter of the amyloid hypothesis, does this really prove anything? <laughs> you know, um, so I, I think that I'm somewhere in the middle in that I do think we can define 
this disease by these um, proteins, right? But but whether you whether targeting these proteins will actually have an effect at the population level when people have already started to show signs of their brain deteriorating, I am not sure. And I and I've used this analogy that someone else used, and I'm sorry I'm stealing it. Someone at the Alzheimer's Association International Conference used it, and I just think it's so great. Um, the idea that a, a lint fire, if a, if your house burned down from a lint fire, you know, lint was the actual cause of your house burning down. But once your house is on fire, if you tried to get rid of the lint, you're not going to do anything, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. so you may it may be the cause, but it's when we intervene on it and and how, you know, that's the question. Um, so I don't think you have to throw the baby out with the bathwater per se by saying amyloid has nothing to do with it, but we may be down the wrong road by targeting it in the way that we do. So I just, you know, I'm curious about how your thoughts have evolved since seeing the lecanemab results. Yeah, I mean, I will say, I think the lecanemab results are are encouraging. I, mm -hmm. I think there are some important questions in terms of, um, so just to, to clarify, the amyloid hypothesis is the hypothesis that amyloid mm -hmm. is the key, that amyloid um, uh, plaques are the key pathology for Alzheimer's disease. And, mm -hmm. um, that removing, and many of the medications now basically target amyloid and remove amyloid from your brain. And the, mm -hmm. the, the underlying hypothesis is that removing amyloid, like removing the lint, mm -hmm. <laughs> will, will um, have cognitive benefits. Mm -hmm. I think that the, the, although the lecanemab results, I think are encouraging, I actually think they're ambiguous about whether they mm -hmm. really supports the amyloid hypothesis because mm -hmm. um, tau changed as well. And um, they didn't show, at least I haven't seen, really close links between the extent of the amyloid reduction and the cognitive benefit. And that mm -hmm. was one of the big puzzles of previous studies, of previous drugs that did remove amyloid and didn't really have cognitive benefit, which right. called into question the whole overall yeah. amyloid um, hypothesis. But as you say, it may be that it's just too late. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing about lecanemab that was surprising is that the benefits appear to occur pretty quickly after mm -hmm. treatment initiation mm -hmm. and appeared to not, not, it was not clear. Sustained, not sustained over time. They, they didn't grow as well, far as. Right. The increase, the, yeah, right. the rate grow. of difference didn't increase right. over Which, time. Right. The amyloid hypothesis would imply that they would grow and that right. they would emerge slowly and that they would grow. Mm -hmm. So I think there may be something more going on with lecanemab that we don't understand, which, mm -hmm. you know, drugs can be useful even if you don't understand how they work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. But I think we're not done one way or the other with the amyloid hypothesis. And I can't, every place I go, I say, we need to demand that the data are released. We should not be, mm -hmm. it should not be acceptable that these these companies keep the data and don't, mm. uh, you know, this is an incredibly important question and it could be answered so much better if the research community had access to the data that they they have accumulated. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great point. And, and I do want to say to end on a positive note that, you know, we've had decades of failed trial, trial results yeah. that did really nothing. Good. And this is one of the first, if not the first, to show both targeting the quote unquote disease and a cognitive benefit. So maybe we're on the path to, uh, you know, to actually doing something and having a treatment that we could um, actually use for people. We already talked about the societal implications of that. So I don't think we need to rehash yeah. that. No, but, but it's very, it was good news. There's no question. Yes. So the last question I want to ask you, because we are at an hour, 
Okay. But I, we can't, yeah, it goes fast, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> I just want to know, where do you think the field of Alzheimer's and dementia research is heading in the future? Or where should it be heading to move the needle to prevent, you know, this, this scourge at the population level? I think there are lots of issues around care and the network of people who provide care. Like we've talked a lot about the people who are affect, directly affected by the disease, mm -hmm. but anyone affected by the disease, there's a whole network of families yes. of ones who are also uh, very much affected. So I think improving what we do for people who are living with Alzheimer's and the, their loved ones, I think. And some of this is just like, it's really obvious, like financial insecurity, you know, mm -hmm. these, these are straightforward things. We, we don't need, we don't need new technical innovations. We need to do a better job providing core services to people. Yes. Um, I think that the medication stuff is promising. I really hope that we manage to structure this so we understand the long-term effects and mm -hmm. My best guess is that there's a lot of heterogeneity in who benefits and who does right. not. Benefit. And I'd love to see research really unpacking that and, and evaluating that. Um, and then I think that, that there's real life course modifications that could have mm -hmm. benefits and pinpointing when in the life course we need to begin and how big of a difference we can make with, with modifiable targets, I think will be a high priority. Awesome. And just piggybacking on something you said at the very beginning, just recognizing that there are multi there's many different things that are causing dementia other than just Alzheimer's. So even if we, even if we completely addressed Alzheimer's, people would still develop dementia. So the key is really going to be kind of a multimodal approach that, that addresses all of the different reasons, you know, that, that people may develop dementia if we really want to move things. So awesome. Well, this has been an awesome discussion. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for your time. And I think we'll wrap up here. But before we go, we'll do our standard closing remarks. If you're an epidemiologist, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which will be held in June 2023 in Portland, Oregon as well as access to the SCR library, which has some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. And you can find out more at epiresearch.org. And also a quick statement that the views expressed in this podcast by both the hosts and any of our guests are ours and the views and their views alone, and don't necessarily represent the views or opinions of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. So we really appreciate you listening and we'll be back with another episode soon. Thank you. Thanks, it was a pleasure.